If you care about gender equality or racial justice or housing policy or criminal justice reform, money in politics affects who gets elected, it affects how they make decisions, and it affects what policies they pass. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Political entrepreneurs are also working in the democracy reform space. My guest today is Tom Lutkowski, co-founder of LA for Democracy Vouchers. Tom also has a book out on democracy vouchers, which give each citizen the ability to contribute to political campaigns without regard to wealth and demonstrably help democratize the funding of political campaigns. I asked Tom about how they've been implemented in Seattle and why and how he's working to bring them to Los Angeles and beyond. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Tom Lutkowski. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Tom, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure, happy to do so. So I'm Tom Letkowski. I'm the author of the book, Democracy Vouchers. I wrote that as a policy organizer at the Democracy Policy Network, which is a state-level progressive group that works to provide model legislation and organize progressive state legislators. And I was doing some campaign finance work for them and wrote that book. And I'm also the co-founder of Los Angeles for Democracy Vouchers which is an organization working to pass this great system we've seen in Seattle and now in Oakland in the city of Los Angeles to help make a more equitable campaign finance system. I'm also a graduate student at Georgetown. So currently I'm getting my master's in public policy and a JD. And a JD. Well, it sounds like you're a reasonably busy fella. I got my hands full. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your roots. Like where do you come from and how do you get interested in politics? Yeah, so I've lived most of my life on the West Coast. I was born in the Bay Area. I moved to Seattle. So both my parents are engineers. And of course, those are pretty tech-heavy towns. And I kind of came about with this sense that smart people can do big, exciting things by working hard together. And I was in high school when Donald Trump first ran for president. And that sense started to fade a little bit. And we started to, as a country be a little bit more a little bit more depressed, a little bit more cynical, and rightly so with a lot of what was going on. The big political awakening for me came out of some gun violence prevention advocacy. So I was a senior in high school when the Parkland shootings happened, and I was involved at my high school in the walkout and started to see both the urgency of these issues, right? It became a little bit less theoretical when it was kids in high school being killed. And also the fact that we could do something, right? So we, we engaged with our state legislature to work on some gun bills. That was the awakening for me. But as I was doing that and got more involved, 
I started to see how on each of these issues that I cared about, campaign finance and democracy were kind of an underlying piece, right? So on, on issues like gun violence, if you want to pass the best gun bill possible, you're going to have to address money in politics, right? And the fact that wealthy donors are able to skew what's possible in our political system. If you want to pass the best climate bill possible, you're going to have to address money in politics, right? And find a way to make it so that it's not just the wealthy few donating in our elections and dominating what our politicians are thinking about. And so I was on the one hand becoming really optimistic, seeing all of this advocacy that was happening around me and seeing the fact that so many Americans seemed to share my views that we needed reform on these issues. But I was also becoming pessimistic because I was seeing this entrenched system where politicians spent a lot of their time dialing wealthy donors in order to fundraise for their campaigns. And so it was those dual impulses that brought me into working on money and politics. One question about that. If it's true, as you propose, that wealthy donors are buying politicians and skewing things, why are the politicians the ones calling to extract the money rather than the donors offering the money? I don't think it's quite as simple as wealthy donors buying politicians, right? That's the simplest framing that we often hear. You know, that would be literal bribery. And maybe that happens in some cases, right? I'm not in all of these conversations. But I think what's more pernicious is the fact that if you're a politician, you need money to fund your campaigns. And right now with our current system, the best way for you to get that money is to call these wealthy donors, right? And so you may be a politician with the best of intentions. You may be someone who says, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fix the system. But right now I just need to raise money for my campaign. But if you're spending four hours a day, five hours a day in some cases, calling these people, a small portion of the top 1% of Americans, and that's who you're talking to, that's who you're hearing from, that starts to change your psychology. It starts to change what you think ordinary people care about, and it skews your behavior and your votes in that way. I, I certainly think it's a crappy system for a lot of reasons. And I think it is more complicated, as you acknowledged, than maybe the original statement. But you went on to UCLA to, and I thought very intriguingly studied both applied math and political science. How was that as a fit together? You know, it was interesting. I think I, I, I came in thinking maybe I was going to do economics. And for some people, that might be how political science and applied math fit together. Um, you know, keeping applied math was, was, was partly keeping my options open for, for future career paths, but partly also wanting to be more of a technical person in the policy space. We're talking about campaign finance today, but I'm very interested in, in tech policy, in disinformation, and many of those issues. So I wanted to keep a little bit of that technical angle as well. So did you do any of the like formal models of politics that are very mathematical that you'll find in, I don't know, usually in graduate political science? Yeah, we got into a little bit of game theory and certainly economics fit, fits into that. We haven't, I, I at least have not done formal models of legislative behavior and things like that. What did you take from that major at that school that stuck with you? I think having the the dual degree was helpful to see how people think and can sometimes talk past each other. So I think that people in technical spaces have a tendency of thinking that tech can fix everything and disregarding the political and economic consequences of that. And I think that's a, a big issue, right? We're seeing this with 
Elon Musk on Twitter, for example, right? That all of a sudden considerations of social science and how you design these platforms are really important, you know, and it's not purely a question of who can code the most efficiently, right? If you're going to design something that's going to work well in society, that's important. And the flip side of that is that many people in the policy world don't have that technical grounding. And so either don't understand or shy away from some of these issues. And so I think it's helpful to have people that can bridge that gap. I was wondering if you're going to bring up Elon and Twitter were early on in his uh, reign there. What, what do you think so far? I'm waiting to see, you know, well, I, I don't know when this will go out, but in the last couple of days, everybody's been predicting the end of Twitter and the collapse of the site. So I think we've seen him what, fire half the workforce and then many other people have left the company. So it doesn't seem to be going great. It demonstrates that these problems are hard and that the solution to how are we going to structure our online environments is not going to be one wealthy individual coming in and, and solving everything. It's going to require a policy framework. It's likely going to require some regulations. It's going to require a lot of smart engineers spending a lot of time talking to social scientists right, and talking to one another and thinking about these problems. You seem to be a fan of the dual degrees. You're on that course again in graduate school. Why law and public policy? Why Georgetown? How's it going? Yeah, well, I wanted to come to Georgetown to be in Washington, D.C. You can't beat that for, for working in public policy. The way it works is this year I take all policy classes. Next year will be my, my first year of law school. So I can't speak yet to the law program, but the public policy program has been fantastic. I've had the chance to work with some really great professors, including some folks that I think are relatively new at the school, but are, are excellent teachers, really thoughtful. So I'm, I'm really pleased so far with the, the folks that I've had a chance to work with. I think the benefit of the dual degree, again, is, is getting both perspectives and being able to come at the world from multiple angles. Looks like you had a whole run of internships. Tell me about some of them. Yeah, well, this gets back to when I was in high school and first getting interested in politics. So I, I worked for a state Senate candidate in my district. And at the time, the Washington State Senate was controlled by Republicans, and we were trying to change that. So I worked for Lisa Wellman, the basic intern work, knocking doors, making phone calls. And we won that race, which was really exciting. And then I worked for my congressman, worked on his campaign. Um, when I was at UCLA, worked in Dianne Feinstein's LA office for a little while. Again, kind of intern grunt work, but, but good, good, good environments to be in. Met some good people there. During COVID, I started working with the Democracy Policy Network, which I think is where it got really interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with the organization, Alec. I um, am, yes. Uh, on the right, the... Yeah. That they produce a lot of model right-wing legislation for the state legislatures. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And for a long time, a similar organization has not existed on the progressive left. There have been various organizations that, that fill parts of that gap, but nothing that has, has done holistically what Alec has done. And the Democracy Policy Network is trying to be that. And so they were looking for student researchers to take on different projects and produce policy kits. And so I joined up with them to work on democracy vouchers. Policy kits, essentially, they have what exactly what you would want if you were a legislator trying to figure out what needs to go into your bill. So they have an intro laying out, why is this a problem? They have a list of policy elements going into detail on what needs to be in a piece of model legislation. 
they have precedents. So for democracy vouchers, the big precedent is Seattle. And now Oakland will be a precedent soon. And then a list of further reading, policy bullpen, folks you can contact to learn more information. And the idea is that this is a one-stop shop for a legislator or a governor or a staffer or somebody at the state level who wants to know what needs to go into a model democracy vouchers policy. So I wrote that policy kit for them. They offered me a chance to do a book as well, which of course I jumped at that opportunity. That came out a little over a year ago. And from there, I don't know if this categorizes as an internship, but with one of the co-founders of that organization, he's from LA. I was going to UCLA. So we co-founded Los Angeles for Democracy Vouchers to try and bring the system to Los Angeles and make that, well, now it would be the third city in the country with the Democracy Voucher system. What did you think through that lens of the recent mayoral election, which was, man, a demonstration of campaign finance not working particularly well in a city? Yeah, I mean, it's stunning. I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I, I want to say over $100 million from Rick Caruso. Yes, uh, that's what they're saying. Amazing that he doesn't win. He's sort of the Mike Bloomberg of L.A., I think there are two big takeaways from this. One is that we're living in a system that's very broken, right? Where a wealthy individual can spend an enormous amount of money on their campaign. When I was in Los Angeles during this campaign, you know, you you go onto any website, you go to YouTube, and you're just getting Rick Caruso ad after Rick Caruso ad, right? It's endless. And I think that demonstrates that this is a big problem, right? But the other thing it demonstrates is that more money doesn't always win. And I think this is a key point to emphasize. You you might think that this point runs counter to me saying that campaign finance is important, but I actually don't think it does, right? I I think that it's really important to note that more money doesn't always win. We saw this in 2016, right? The Clinton campaign had more money than the Trump campaign. You mentioned Michael Bloomberg, right? Who spent hundreds of millions or billions and what got a few delegates in the end, right? More money doesn't always win. But the important thing to note is that if you are a candidate with no money, then you have no chance of winning because you're not on the playing field. And so, and I'm sure we'll get more into what Democracy Vouchers is and how it works, but that's the key takeaway for me is that this is a system that is not gonna set fundraising records for grassroots candidates, right? It's not gonna make you on the same level as somebody like Rick Caruso or Michael Bloomberg, but it can get you on the playing field so that you go from no money to having some money and can at least get your message out and have a chance at having the voters hear what you have to say. And if the voters like that, you'll win your election. When do you first come upon the idea of democracy vouchers? I think it was 2015. So that was the year that Seattle passed their system. Democracy vouchers is an idea that goes back to, I think, 2002 or 2003. I bet it goes back before that. But yeah, it's been around. That may well be true. I think the origin was a couple of law professors that, that wrote a book trying to say, well, given everything the Supreme Court has done to restrict our options, and actually that book was before Citizens United, right? But at the time, given everything the Supreme Court has done, what can we do? How can we think our way out into a better system? And democracy vouchers was what they came up with. And for a long time, this idea kind of lived in law professor land, right? And it was only in 2015 when a group of advocates in Seattle took this on and got it passed, that it it really exploded onto the scene. Tell me what you know about what happened there in Seattle and what the learnings are. Yeah, so it's really interesting. I've spoken with many of the folks from that campaign. In 2013, so two years prior, 
they had tried to pass another type of public financing system called matching funds, which is a good idea, but a worse idea, you know, just to, just to put it bluntly. But it, it's, it's a good idea, right? The idea being that small donors would have their donations uh, multiplied by the city, right? Either at a one-to-one rate or, you know, a six-to-one rate, right? Or, or, we have something like that in, in Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think New York City does as well. Actually, Los Angeles does currently as well. And they had tried to pass that in 2013. And this group, interestingly, was not a group of longtime campaign finance reform advocates. Many of them came out of racial justice work, right, or economic justice work. But like me, like how I was describing my own path, came to see campaign finance as a key issue in terms of addressing those other policies, right? If we want to have better policy on all these other issues, we need to fix campaign finance in the city of Seattle. And so in 2013, they tried to pass this matching funds program. Nobody expected them to win. I think they had very little money, but they came quite close. I think they came within a couple of percentage points. And from that, they got a lot of attention. Some larger donors saw that and and realized, well, maybe if these folks had had any money at all for their campaign, they might have actually been able to win. And so that really powered it going forward. And so in 2015, they decided to go with democracy vouchers, along with a few other reforms for the city of Seattle, and they got it passed. How well has it worked from your viewpoint? Yeah, so we should probably just say what, what this system is okay. uh, and, and just, just spell it out. So the concept is that every city resident in the city of Seattle, each election cycle gets four vouchers worth $25 a piece to give to local candidates. So in Seattle, that's mayor, that's city attorney, or that's one of the nine city council districts. And the idea behind this is a couple of things, right? So, so first, it's to change who donates. So in, in Seattle, before the program, so back in like 2013, there was a great study that found that one of the best predictors of who was going to be a donor in local politics was whether or not your house had a view of the water. So if you could see Lake Washington or you could see Puget Sound from your house, you were pretty likely to be a donor, but otherwise probably not. And so, of course, that selects for the wealthiest folks, often the white people right in in the city who disproportionately live in those neighborhoods. Since democracy vouchers has been passed, that's no longer true. Donors today in Seattle are more diverse by race, by income, by age, also just more spread out throughout the city than before the program. That's been one big success. A second is who can run for office, right? That's another big goal of this program is to make sure that it's not just folks with wealthy connections who have the ability to do the dialing for dollars that I was describing, right? That oftentimes selects for incumbents who tend to have those connections. It selects for certain professions who are more able to run for office because they have wealthy connections. And often it selects for white men, right? Who are disproportionately seen as more electable. So they're more likely to get donations, and often are more likely to have those connections. And in Seattle, we've seen that Democracy Vouchers has made that no longer true. A new pool of candidates is able to run for office. And a great example for, of that was last year, the 2021 mayoral cycle, which had the most diverse field of candidates ever in the city's history. We've spoken to a couple of them for my organization, and they cite Democracy Vouchers as one of the key reasons that they were able to run competitive campaigns, right? They're well aware that they couldn't have fundraised as much as they did from the traditional set of donors. But all of a sudden with democracy vouchers, it's not about how many wealthy people you know. It's just about how connected you are in your community, right? And so a candidate that's able to go door to door, right? Or able to show up at community events and fundraise that way, 
all of a sudden can be really effective and can use that to fund a competitive campaign. So those have been big successes out of Seattle. Are people running for office allowed to spend money outside of that system of vouchers? Yeah. So two things. Firstly, the program is optional for candidates. This is a constitutional requirement. So the Supreme Court has said that all public financing programs have to be optional. So if you're a candidate who wants to run under the old system, you have the option to do so. The city's not going to stop you. If you do run with democracy vouchers, what you do is you literally sign a contract with the city in exchange for the right to collect democracy vouchers. When you sign that, you're agreeing to certain rules, right? So you, you still can raise some private money, but in most of the races, the contribution limit is reduced. So you're essentially agreeing not to double dip to, to a large extent, right? The thinking behind that was the program didn't want candidates to not sign up because they were worried about their ability to fundraise, but they also didn't want democracy vouchers to just be a small supplement on top of a race that has all the same issues as before. So they found that nice balance. Candidates who sign up also agree to spending limits on their campaign. There's a max amount that you can spend. They also agree to attend public debates, which has been pretty key as well. In a lot of jurisdictions, there have been issues where incumbents just don't debate their challengers, thinking that they have the name ID, so they don't need to bother, right? And this is a program that, that allows cities to require that, right? Normally, a city cannot mandate that a candidate show up to a public debate. But with democracy vouchers, because it's an optional program, you can mandate that. And so you can use that to improve the discourse around the election. With spending limits a lot, sometimes it disadvantages challengers because it's expensive to reach voters. If you want to send a mailer to every household in your district, it can cost real money. Is there enough money in the system there for people to communicate and campaign effectively? I think candidates have found that there is. And it's worth noting, you know, in, in last year's mayoral race, both of the finalists that reached the general election used democracy vouchers, right? So candidates are widely choosing to opt into this program. It's worth noting that there is an option where if, if either you face a candidate who's not using the program and who's raising private money, or if you face a, enough independent expenditures against yourself, there are ways to be released from that spending limit. And so that, again, was an effort to ensure that candidates aren't going to be hurt by joining the program, right? We want this to, to be something that candidates actively choose to sign up for. And this is a kind of public financing, right? The money that is represented by the vouchers is taxpayer money. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. In Seattle, it costs about $3 million a year. So about $6 million per election cycle, which is around a tenth of a percent of the city budget. So it's not nothing, but it's cheaper than people tend to think. It's certainly not Rick Caruso money. It's not Rick Caruso money. Yeah, yeah. And Seattle, that was financed with a property tax increase. Uh, at the time, it was the smallest property tax increase in city history, um, which, which I, I think the, the campaigners in 2015 loved to mention that as often as they could. So, you know, it's important to note that you have to find a funding source for this program, but it's not overly expensive, right? I think sometimes when people hear everybody's getting $100, they, they can blow up what that's going to cost in your head. But when you build in these other rules around candidate spending limits and things like that, this is actually not that expensive of a program. Do you have a sense of what percentage of the vouchers are actually employed rather than just, you know, forgotten or discarded or something? Yeah. So, so prior to the program existing in Seattle, around 1% of, of Seattleites were campaign donors. Um, so then the program passed in 2015 
and was first implemented for the 2017 races. That year, I believe around 3% of people use their vouchers up to, I want to say 5% in 2019 and 7 to 8% in 2021. So we've seen pretty rapid growth in terms of the, the uses of vouchers. It's also worth noting that recent studies have found it's not always the same pool of people that are using their vouchers, right? So some people were concerned that, well, is this just going to be, you know, the, the same people who are already politically engaged, right? Or are vouchers going to create a new political class that uses their vouchers and everybody else will be left out? But that's really not what we're finding. We're finding, one, that voucher donors are much more diverse than donors were before the program. And two, that just because someone uses a voucher in one cycle, somebody else might use one in the next, right? And that person might not. And what that tells us is that this is tied to the candidate. If there's a candidate that's running that you're excited about and that you feel represented you and your community, you're pretty likely to use your voucher. And so really what it comes down to is candidates from different communities, different parts of the city running for office and encouraging people to use their vouchers to support them. I can see that it's growing over time. It still strikes me as surprisingly low, the percentage of people using them. If you have free money to participate in politics, to have less than 10% of the people taking advantage of that strikes me as there's some missing educational component or lack of broad-based interest in contributing that I guess that you would want to see. What do you think remains to be done to fully take advantage of that kind of system? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. One, it's just worth noting that Seattle has odd year elections. So that means that there are no statewide races in Washington State going on. There are no midterms. There's no presidential race going on. So these are elections where maybe if you're lucky, you get 40% voter turnout. And so the fact that a fifth of those people, and hopefully higher soon, are using their democracy vouchers is pretty successful. The other thing it's worth noting is that this is a brand new program. Seattle's the first to ever do this, right? And so they've been learning on the fly the best way to administer the program. And I think it's a lot of credit to the Seattle Ethics and Elections Commission that administers this, that we've seen the increases we have. One example of that is that Initially, the way the program was administered is that every registered voter received four vouchers in the mail, came with a prepaid envelope, and you could fill your vouchers out and send them back that way. And of course, what happened is some people saved them, right? Some people knew what it was and used them, but many, many people threw them out, right? Or put it in a drawer somewhere. It's like got a coupon that I'm never going to use for... Yeah, exactly. It shows up. If you haven't heard what it is, maybe you're worried this is like junk mail or something like that, and you throw it out and don't think about it again. And so the city had two innovations to address that problem. One was creating a digital system for vouchers so that later, if you hear about the program and get interested in it, you can just go online and enter your information. The Ethics Commission will cross-check to make sure that you're not using more than your allocated vouchers, but it's an easier way for people to use their vouchers. That was the first. The second innovation was allowing candidates and their campaign staff to carry replacement voucher forms so that candidates could go door-to-door or staff could go door-to-door, canvassing folks, encouraging them to, to come out and vote, and then mentioning, hey, by the way, have you heard of the Democracy Voucher Program? You actually have $100. Would you maybe like to give it to my campaign? And that turned out to be really effective. When a candidate is there at your door or their staff is there at your door, that's a big mobilizer for people. And it's a real motivator for people to use their vouchers. 
It's also worth noting, and I should just draw out this point, that not only does that boost voucher usage, that actually boosts voter turnout. There's some really great data on this, that non-voters or low propensity voters in Seattle, when they use a democracy voucher, they then go on to vote at six to 10 times the rate of other low voters or non-propensity voters. And those are stunning numbers, right? Normally canvassing, maybe if you're really successful, you, you boost voter turnout by a couple of percent, right? And granted in close elections, that can make all the difference and that can be really important, which is why campaigns and volunteers put so much effort into that, into canvassing. But six to 10 times the rate of turnout is unheard of. So this is really powerful. What we see happening there is this is changing people's psychology, right? So if you're someone who before might've said, oh, these politicians are all the same. None of them care about people like me. They never come talk to me. But now somebody's at your door, right? A candidate or a member of their staff is at your door. And not only that, but you're put in a position of power, right? Because you have money through these democracy vouchers that you're able to give them. That changes your psychology and it changes your relationship to local politics. And once you use that voucher and you're bought in, you're so much more likely to turn out to vote. Can you bullet your vouchers, give all four to the same candidate or? Yes. Yes. So, yep. I mean, if I were running for local office, I guess city council there or something, that would make me want to get out canvassing for vouchers really early before other people had got them and just try to sweep them all up and put them into the employ of my campaign. Yeah. I mean, the goal was to encourage people to spend more time canvassing and less time on the phone calling rich donors, right? And that's been a big success. In terms of sweeping them all up, what we've seen is there's just a wide enough pool of people with vouchers that there's still more people to go to. There's always going to be another neighborhood, another person you can meet at an event who can still use their voucher. Candidates are pretty likely to hit their spending limit before they, they start running out of people to get in touch with. When you think about the Seattle example, if you could draw on that for another city, but maybe improve upon it? What improvements, if any, would you make? I think the first thing is just to, to learn from some of the improvements that they've made, right? So I mentioned having a digital system. That's a no-brainer now, right? Allowing candidates to carry the voucher replacement forms door-to-door. That's also a no-brainer. Another key thing, and this ties into our campaign in Los Angeles, is making sure that the city invests money in public awareness. And I think Seattle did a reasonably good job of this. They made sure that literally in the legislation when this was passed, they required the city to spend money on advertising, on running community events, on holding focus groups in different communities to understand what questions did people still have about the program? What were people confused about? Seattle administers their program in 15 languages in order to really maximize inclusivity. And so those are all key things that going forward, we in Los Angeles will be looking at. And I hope that other advocates and other programs will continue to learn from. Can you tell me about why you decide to launch this LA for Democracy vouchers that you mentioned? I mean, clearly you believe in the policy and you had an opportunity with this other person, but tell me about like, how serious of an effort is this, right? Uh, that to 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 pass any kind of policy through a big city with complicated politics like LA is a big challenge. Even if you get really big backers, tell me about like 
the process of starting that and where you are in trying to make it happen? Yeah, like with any new organization, when you start out, you're not sure where it's going to go, right? And over time, either you just fail or you start to grow and more and more people get involved and you get more and more backers. So I mentioned my co-founder, Mike Draskovich. When we started out, it was the two of us and we were on weekly calls. This was the very end of 2020 into the beginning of 2021 when we launched this. We were on calls saying, okay, how are we going to get the data to, to pitch the case for, for where money's coming from in Los Angeles? How are we going to parse through this data from the Ethics Commission? Who do we need to talk to? Can we get this through city council? And we started out with a lot to learn. Over the last two years, we've spoken to well over 100 groups in the city. We're working with the Ethics Commission to figure out what exactly this program needs to look like. We're working with local council offices hopefully working with them to figure out what exactly the details of this program should be. We're endorsed by Lawrence Lessig, who's a national leader in the campaign finance space and a well-known name in good governance generally. We're finally, excitingly starting to have some money coming in and hopefully going to have some, some exciting new projects soon. That doesn't mean it's not still an uphill battle, right? Passing something like this in Los Angeles is, is difficult. There's a good chance we'll have to be a charter amendment just to get into the weeds here which will either mean it requires a massive signature gathering campaign, or it could be referred to the ballot by the city council. And so either of those has its own set of challenges, but we're really excited about the partners that we have now, the folks that we've brought into our team, some people from California Common Cause, a former person there who's joined us, um, some local advocates, former candidates in Los Angeles who've joined us. So we're really excited about this team, and we think we have a really good chance of moving this forward. Is Karen Bass on record for or against? You know, we reached out to all the campaigns. I don't think we got her on record yet. But now that she's the incoming mayor, we'll have to follow up and see if we can do that. Yeah, you would. Th- I would think she would be open to it, given her profile, but I don't know. It is hard to get incumbent politicians who came in in one system to change the system quite often. Yeah, I mean, it could go either way. You, you could imagine having just run against this billionaire, being ready for campaign finance reform, you know, and that being pretty appealing. But it's also worth noting, there have been some recent scandals in Los Angeles that you might have been following that have created a real appetite for not just campaign finance reform, but all sorts of good governance reform that wasn't there two months ago. And so we're, on the one hand, outraged by these racist statements made on tape by these council members. But we're also excited that this might finally be a time when folks are ready to come together to, to make some progress on these issues. Do you think that it would make it harder to pass if you added in other reforms like ranked choice voting or other democracy reforms that are on the rise a little bit through the system here and there? You know, that's a good question. And that's part of what we're working to figure out. It'd be kind of nice to have a package of a lot of stuff that would reform elections and get it through in one time rather than having to keep returning with new ideas. Yeah, to, to me, that would be really appealing, right? And this is something that people like Lawrence Lessig have been pushing for a long time, not at the LA city level, but at the national level, right? Is a need for a new voting system, right? Choice voting, right? redistricting reform, an independent redistricting commission. And there are a lot of these conversations happening now 
in Los Angeles on these other issues as well. The stage that this is at is we're figuring out what exactly the sequence will be, whether a package can come together. It, it's hard to make one unilateral statement on whether it's better to have a package or not. Right? These are questions that get worked out by the coalitions on the ground. And ultimately, everybody's excited about everybody else's idea. And so we're just excited to see what comes out of this process with these coalitions that we're working with and what gets moved forward on the ballot, what gets moved forward on the council and how we can support all of that. It strikes me that having this passion and this involvement in this reform effort has got to make going to law school and public policy school a little more interesting, a little more concrete. How is that play back into your education? How does your education play back into the effort? Yeah, it does. So I mentioned when we were just starting out trying to figure out some really basic questions, right? Like literally what percentage of money in LA politics comes from donors who live in Los Angeles? That was a surprisingly hard question to answer, right? And being somebody with a little bit of a math background, knowing a little bit of computer programming really helps when we are diving into a massive Excel spreadsheet from the LA Ethics Commission and trying to parse out who gave from what different zip code and all of those pieces. And so that does give more motivation for the policy classes, but for the math classes, the statistics classes that I'm in. It's also exciting, you know, working on policy and clearly I'm passionate about campaign finance reform, but being in these meetings as a young person gives me a perspective on the other issues that I'm interested in to think about, well, what does gun violence prevention look like from a legislator's perspective, right? And what factors they're considering? What does disinformation look like from a legislator's perspective? Or what conversations do I think are happening behind the scenes between advocacy groups working on these issues, right? And being in some of those conversations for campaign finance reform does give me a renewed perspective and I think helps me to engage more fully in my policy classes. What was someone who read your book take from it? Who would you want to read it? What would they learn beyond what what you've been able to articulate in a much briefer format here? Who would I want to read it? I sent a lot of copies to, to whatever elected officials would get back to me. The book goes more in depth into how the system works. When I first sell democracy vouchers to someone, what I often find is they haven't heard of it. They're a little skeptical. Then they get excited about it once they hear the pitch and hear all the benefits out of Seattle. And then they think about it a little bit more and they're skeptical again, right? And they have some detailed questions on, well, how exactly do you administer this? And is this going to be too expensive and things like that? And we have answers for those. And Seattle has solved those problems, right? They have a program that's up and running and successful. And the book really details how that has worked and what's been effective there. The other thing I think is important to take away is some of the conversations I had with the book for folks on the ground in Los Angeles and folks in Seattle who worked on this. The big takeaway from that was that when we're campaigning for these issues, we found that it's really important to bring this out of the good governance silo, right? There's a certain set of people that get really excited for good governance issues just for that alone, you know? And so by good governance issues, I mean campaign finance reform, I mean ranked choice voting, ending gerrymandering, ending the electoral college, issues that improve the process of how we select who represents us and everything that goes into that. And those issues to me are exciting on their own. But it's really important to, to not just let it be that set of people engaging. It's really important to actively make the case that 
If you care about climate change, you need to be thinking about good governance issues. If you care about gender equality or racial justice or housing policy or criminal justice reform, money in politics affects who gets elected, it affects how they make decisions, and it affects what policies they pass. And so that was a big takeaway for us as well, is that it's important to engage the, the folks that are already on this issue, but you also need to go out to the racial justice groups in your community and get them engaged and get their input on the policy, right? And co-design it with them. You need to go out to groups working on housing policy and get their input and co-design it with them. And that's been a big takeaway for us is that those groups should not be afterthoughts, right? You have to, right from the get-go, engage with the broader community in our case in Los Angeles, but in, in whatever city or state or jurisdiction you're trying to pass your policy in, you have to engage with the broader community and get their input because they're going to be key members of the process and they might have different perspectives from you. A lot of what you're talking about sounds sort of to the progressive ear like good things. And you're contemplating that so far in this conversation in two cities that tend to be progressive areas that are diverse, that where not all, but a fair amount of the public policy is certainly different than in a conservative state government or part of the country run with a different philosophy. Do you have ambitions to bring this to areas that might be less interested in, in progressive government governance and more interested in but might be interested in democracy reform for other reasons, maybe conservative reasons. Are you, and how would you change your pitch if, if you were doing that? Yeah, I think that these issues can be appealing to people everywhere. And we actually have evidence for that. So, so you mentioned Seattle, I think, voted 91% for Joe Biden in 2020. Obviously a very democratic city. Oakland, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm sure similar. it's similar. Yep. Yeah, Los Angeles, also quite progressive. But democracy vouchers passed in South Dakota in 2016. After passing in Seattle in 2015, a coalition in South Dakota got it on the statewide ballot. And the same year that Trump won that state by 30 points, something like that, democracy vouchers passed. It was approved by the majority of voters. Now, unfortunately, South Dakota is one of a few states where citizen initiatives are non-binding. And so the state legislature called an emergency session and repealed the bill. The bill would have included democracy vouchers, some other anti-corruption measures. You can look this up. I'm not shaking my head in disbelief. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm shaking my head in, in sorrow that they would do that. Absolutely. I mean, it's infuriating. Yeah. I mean, I'm personally persuaded that it's good public policy to, to, to make this kind of change for a lot of the reasons that you have enunciated. It seems like it has the potential to change civic engagement and broaden fundraising and change incentives of elected officials, generally all in good ways. Yeah, but, but I'm just noting too, I, I encourage people to look, to look this up and see the protests that happened at the time, right? There were folks at the state capitol saying how outrageous this was, that we the people passed an anti-corruption package that included democracy vouchers and some other provisions, and the legislature just decides that they don't like it. Of course, you're absolutely right. That's infuriating and anti-democratic. But it's worth noting that it passed in a red state, right? A very red state where Trump had won by 30 points. So this is popular with Democrats, with independents, and with Republicans. Just not, not all politicians 
necessarily, but it's popular with voters across the political spectrum. Well, we'll, we'll see. I mean, a lot of things like this once politicized and thrown into the partisanship vortex, they lose some of their popularity and they are defeatable. But one of the interesting things about ballot initiatives is that red states have passed a variety of progressive reforms while also voting for Republicans. You know, minimum wage increases in states that are also voting for Republican governors and senators. So this may be in that category too, I suspect that that it is. Yeah, yeah, granted, you're correct. Once we are so polarized that if this were to become something that, oh, X politician supports it and Y politician doesn't, I imagine that a large swath of the country would fall into alignment with that, right? But your other point is is notable as well, right? That there have been red states that have passed minimum wage increases, marijuana legalizations, things like that. There are very progressive policies passing in red states, even as Republicans win elections in those states. That's a deeper issue that I don't have an answer to on how Democrats can rework their branding, figure out how to get the policy message out in the media environment. But in my little niche here, I would just note that democracy vouchers and campaign finance reform is something like that, right? That separate from any issues with the branding of a particular person and their popularity or approval ratings, democracy vouchers as a concept is popular with voters across the political spectrum. You mentioned that you kind of got it into the mix through democracy policy network. Did you find legislators in any states pick it up from there and introduce it? Did that have any legs? They're not active in that many states, right? I don't know how many states they have legislators in. It's a pretty broad network. I wish I had these numbers off the top of my head. There's another one called Six. Yeah. Uh, is that a competitor of theirs, sort of? Or are they linked in any way? They're not linked. They, they, they work in tandem. Six, again, I don't want to speak for the Democracy Policy Network because I'm a lowly policy organizer. My understanding is that Six tends to work on better established policies that are, are active and being discussed in more places. The Democracy Policy Network's goal is to raise up new policies that might have a few precedents. Something like democracy vouchers that's passed in Seattle, now it's passed in Oakland, but it's not being discussed in 30 states or something like that, right? And so their goal is more about raising up that part of the conversation. To your other question about it getting introduced, back in the day, this was introduced in Virginia. Now we can't take credit for that. That was before the Democracy Policy Network and my work there existed. We haven't gotten bills introduced at the state level yet, but we have gotten pickup from some legislators that are interested and we're having conversations with. So this is the long, slow process of, of getting legislation passed. So you, you get 20 or 30 different leads, maybe one becomes something, but at the very least, they all have conversations with their staff and the idea continues to spread. And it's hard to predict where exactly that will pop up into an actual bill that gets passed. What should I have asked you that I haven't? I think we've covered a lot of what I wanted to talk about. I would reiterate what we've seen in Seattle. We've seen the diversity of donors increase. That's one. We've seen more candidates can run for office. That's two. And we've seen more folks turning out to vote after using their vouchers. That's three. So if you take away three things from this podcast, I want it to be those three. If you want to follow our work in Los Angeles, we're at lademocracyvouchers.org. You can sign up to volunteer. You can help us out, send us ideas. We'd be really appreciative of any of that. Well, super interesting to hear what you're up to and 
to learn a little bit more about Seattle and LA. Anything else you want to say? No, I think you've covered it. Really appreciate the chance to be on here today. Okay. Thank you, Tom. That was Tom Lotkowski. He's at LAfordemocracyvouchers.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.